Good morning. I knew you were there. Wouldn't this have just been a wonderful day to sleep in? And the half of the congregation who would say amen can't because they are. Rich, we're going to miss you, but we have one request. Leave us your address of where you're moving and how many bedrooms you have. Because it's snowing now. I mean, it's raining now. We can't tell anymore. But it will be snowing again. And you'll have guests. And if I don't show up some Sunday morning and it's snowing, call Rich. What we want to do today and for the next several weeks is to try to capture, if we can, if the Holy Spirit will bless us in such a way, a fresh glimpse of Jesus. Somebody said to me after I preached a sermon prior to Easter, I think it was the message from Mark, Jesus, Savior, Hero, King. It's so nice to hear a sermon about Jesus. And it kind of took me back a little bit. I thought, well, what do you mean? What are you, what are you, what are we, what are you talking about? We talk about Jesus a lot. And it dawned on me, you know, we've been in the epistles where we talked about the ramifications of Jesus in the lives of people. But we hadn't really been in the Gospels very often. And so we spent uh, the last four Sundays in the Gospels, three or four Sundays in the Gospels. But it just kind of struck a chord of response within me, and I thought, you know, that's good. That's good. I, maybe we, what we need to do is focus on the Gospel for a while, on the Gospels for a while, particularly the Gospel of John. So you can participate in this. In fact, I would trust that you participate in all the messages that come from this pulpit by praying and asking God if he would be pleased to give us a fresh glimpse of his son. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John. We're not going to go entirely through the Gospel of John. It'll be just a few messages. But let's do more than just look. Let's pray. Let's ask for an enlarged capacity to understand. The whole issue of looking at the life of Jesus raises an interesting question. It's taken sharp focus in my life from time to time. I remember one time in particular, we were getting ready to take our oldest daughter, Sarah, back to Illinois, where she had been attending college, to start preparations for a short-term mission trip with royal servants to Europe. And the whole question became focused in my mind, how do we get anyone to understand who Jesus is? Because that was largely what they're going to be doing in Europe, is evangelism. How do we begin to get anyone interested in, or to, uh, to understand who Jesus is? How do we understand it? I think from a Godward sign, side, um, Christ is understood because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I don't care what side of the equation you're on, whether you're an Arminian theologically or a Calvinist theologically, both Arminians and Calvinists have to agree on this one thing. Unless the Holy Spirit's actively involved, we don't come to faith. Unless the Holy Spirit's actively involved, we do not grow in faith. It's interesting, isn't it? The Calvinists call it um, irresistible grace. The Arminians call it prevenient grace. But in both cases... 
The Holy Spirit's involved. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6, verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But how about from a human perspective? We know that the Holy Spirit's got to be involved, but how about uh, from a human perspective? What role do we play in helping others understand who he is? How, what role do we play in helping ourselves understand who he is? And John answers this question, in my opinion, in the opening verses of his gospel. He illustrates how people come to understand. It is through words and facts. Now, we're not throwing actions out because we come to understand through actions as well. We observe Christ in the lives of other people. But let's just limit ourselves right now for the sake of discussion to what John seems to limit himself to in these opening words of the Gospel of John. We come to understand about Jesus through words and facts. Here's my premise. I have two of them to share with you today. Understanding John's careful choice of words will help us gain an appreciation for who Jesus is. Understanding John's careful choice of words will help us to gain an appreciation for who Jesus is. Words are powerful tools. I'm sure you've thought about this from one time to another. Think of what you can do with words. You can paint pictures with words. I served under a man one time by the name of Cyril Homer. He'd come over to the United States as a young man. He was born and raised in Wales until he came to the States. And this guy could tell a story. He was an incredible storyteller. He could take a couple of facts that seemed kind of bare bones and not very interesting. By the time he got done weaving them into a story, you were captivated. That's what words can do. Words can also communicate concepts. Through words, we can increase people's understanding. I've heard, I know that you've experienced this as well. Words can also elicit emotion. They can bring people to decisions and bring them to action. And these words, of course, to do this have got to be chosen carefully. They're always the difference between understanding and misunderstanding. Words are the difference between war and peace. Words are the difference between love and hate, uh, appreciation and contempt. There has never been a time among mankind when words have not been important. They refine, they define all other forms of communication. Hitting someone communicates, but it still requires an explanation. Words. Now, let's get to the prophets and the apostles. Because these guys are wordsmiths par excellence. Doesn't seem, this doesn't mean that they, they all master, were master communicators in and of themselves, by no means. Many of them, I don't think, were exceptionally educated. Some of them were not exceptionally bright, which doesn't mean they were dumb, but I think they were basically average guys. Fishermen, rough and ready types, blue-collar guys. But when the Holy Spirit ministered through them, it was a different story. They were superintended. Catch this, if you will, because this is very, very important. They were superintended by the Holy Spirit. So extraordinarily so that he worked through even their own vocabulary to communicate the truth he wanted to communicate and to accomplish his purpose. This is big-time important stuff. 
The Holy Spirit was ministering to them and through them. And case in point, John's careful choice of the noun word. That's a good case in point. Look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This term, Word, this noun, was chosen to communicate information. And it was chosen to elicit a response by John. And it was chosen with a certain audience in mind. Part of that audience was Greek. To them, the term word, or logos, was used very often. For them, this word was uh, the, the, the thought or the reason which des- resided within a man. Sometimes finding expression through what he said, but within him whether he expressed it or not. It was sort of the organizing principle, principle for the universe, this concept of logos, or the word. So in philosophical terms, Greeks saw the concept of the word as the soul of the universe. The energy from which all other things came. One of their own philosophers, a guy by the name of Heraclitus, declared all things happen through this logos, this this thought or this reason within man. For people who conceived of the universe in physical terms like the Greeks, Heraclitus used the term logos to account for the order of this universe. It was the stabilizing, directing principle of the universe. So what does it mean for Greeks for John to use this term logos, or word? Even for the common, uninitiated, those who didn't know anything about philosophy, it would be widely recognized, this term would be. And it would be something very, very important. It would arouse in their minds something supreme. Now let me throw a caution in here. It's important to know that John draws the Greeks in with this term, but that his meaning behind it goes far beyond theirs. Especially as it related to something divine. You see, the Greeks thought of the gods, and thus as the logos, the organizing principle, as detached from this world. Um, Unfeeling, insensitive. But John's logos shows the exact opposite. John shows a God who is passionately involved. John's logos, our word, speaks of God's coming to where we are, taking our nature upon himself, entering our struggle, and out of it all, providing for our salvation. That's what John meant when he used the word, word. Listen to him, John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Maybe a statement by William Barclay will help us in this regard. Barclay says, here is the mind of God, this logos in John, this word in John. Here is the expression of the thought of God. Here is the logos, Jesus Christ. The word is Jesus Christ. This is where John is going with this. So in the beginning was the Word. Not just an organizing principle, but a person. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. What would it mean to the Hebrews? Even more important to us. Throughout the Old Testament, this term Word, Word of the Lord, is the means used to accomplish His will. Let me give you a for instance. 
Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. In Genesis 1-3, we see God said, let there be light. Notice, too, the parallel, if you will. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens. Here's the parallel. John 1-1. In the beginning was the word. It compels a comparison between the two. God speaking something into existence and God in the beginning being the word. There's a connection here. Let me just throw in something here about the Targums. You say, what in the world is a Targum? Well, a Targum was a paraphrase of the Hebrew text that was originally given orally and later it was read when the scriptures were read in the synagogue. And this was done so because the Hebrews had lost their language. They were fast losing their language in any, way, in any case. And that many of them wouldn't understand the Hebrew as it was being read. So the Targums were used to interpret this, the Hebrew for them, usually in Aramaic, and uh, at a time when the Jews did not like to use God's name for fear of irreverence. They substituted other expressions. Instead of using the term God, they would, they would use uh, the Holy One, the name, and sometimes the word. An example, Exodus chapter 19, verse 17. Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet God. That's what the text says. Here's how the Targum would interpret it. Moses brought forth the people from out of the camp to meet the Word of God. This is quite common. And it's quite important for us to pick up on this. Here's the point. Wherever people were familiar with the Targums, they were familiar with the Word as a designation of the divine. So when John spoke and a Hebrew heard him speaking, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He's speaking about someone who is divine. What do we see? For both Jews and Gentiles, the term word, logos, represents the ruling fact of the universe, and it represents that fact as the self-expression of God. It was chosen by John with a certain aim in mind. John knew Gentiles and Jews alike would catch the essential meaning behind the use of the term. And he aimed to accomplish not only that, but to lead them to a richer, deeper meaning behind the term. His use of it was far more than something merely casual. It sets the scene. It prepares people for what he's going to share in his gospel. For John, the word is not a principle. It's not just an organized principle, organizing principle, or even a designation of the divine. It was a person. It was a person. That's what people would begin to begin begin to realize as they listened and read John's gospel or heard John's gospel. What should information like this do to us? At the very least, it should capture our attention. It should lead us beyond a mere flirtation with the notion of who he is. It acts as a catalyst to cause us to look at him other than casually. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So understanding John's careful choice of words will help us gain an appreciation for who Jesus is. He chose his words carefully. But there's another premise we want to deal with as well. 
And that is this. Understanding John's careful word choice of facts will help us gain an appreciation for who Jesus is. John makes his choices very carefully. Notice what he wants people to know regarding this Christ, the Word. Six facts. First of all, He is eternal. He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. This phrase, in the beginning, was a timely reminiscence. Most likely a very conscious one on John's part. The first book of the Hebrew Bible was named in the beginning from its opening words. So it's a known expression. John is writing about a new beginning, a creation, so he uses words recalling the first creation. He'll use other words that are big in Genesis Genesis as well. He uses the word life in verse 4 of John chapter 1. He uses the word light in verse 4. You can find this in the creation account as well. He uses the word darkness in verse 5. So just as with the first creation account, the second is not carried out by someone less than God. That's John's point. And he's making it well. There's a double meaning here most likely when John says in the beginning. It's very common in John. John would use more than, give, uh, ascribe more than one meaning to some of the phrases and words that he used. For instance, when John speaks about eternal life, He's not talking about life that never ends. He's not talking about quantity of life alone. He is talking about that, but not that alone. When John uses the term eternal life, he also means quality of life. Jesus came that you might have life abundantly. So it's a quality as well as a quantity of life. So how about in the beginning? What would be the double meaning? In the beginning of history, there was never a time when the word failed to exist in the beginning. In the beginning can also mean at the root of the universe. There was never a thing which did not depend on him for its very existence. This is pretty heavy stuff. And notice the telltale verb here. In the beginning was the word. Past tense, right? When all the other stuff came into being, the word was already here. The word, a person, was already here. A reference to the eternality of Christ. God, all, you can't always depend on the verb tenses for conclusive evidence on an issue, but this, along with the context, is very, very telling. It denotes the word Christ existed before creation, therefore he was not created, he has always been. Jesus is eternal. John wanted his audience to know this. It's a fact he labors over. Not only that, but Jesus is eternally related to the Father. The Word was with God. You see it there? Second phrase of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Literally it means the Word was toward God. And again, two ideas emerge. The term suggests accompaniment. God the Father has always been accompanied by Jesus the Son. It also suggests, however, relationship. God the Father and Jesus were more than just together. They existed with the closest of personal relationships. God the Father and Jesus are not identical, but they are at one with one another. So they're not just like this. They're like this. 
Their lives are intertwined with one another, each its own entity, but inseparably at one with one another. And he is equal with the Father. You notice, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's not just that somehow Jesus was able to act like God. It's not that there was just something divine about him. Jesus is God. And the noun is emphatic. Nothing less than God will do for our understanding of the word, says Leon Morris, New Testament theologian. Let me read that again. Nothing less than God will do for our understanding of this term word. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternally related to the Father. Jesus is equal with the Father. But John's not done. Look at verse 3. Jesus is creator. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. It's a natural acknowledgement. When you talk about Jesus' eternal existence, it's normal to think about him as creator. Everything owes its existence to him. Powerful stuff. Actually not him alone. He and the Father shared in the work. In fact, follow with me if I, as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. Listen carefully. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. Listen. From whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. The Father created, but he did it through Jesus. Notice again John's emphasis. He states the fact in two ways. Through him all things were made. Without him, in fact, nothing was made that has been made. So what, is, what are the facts so far about Jesus? The living word. He's eternal. He's eternally related to the Father. He's equal with the Father. He's creator. Not only that, he's the author of life. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. It's only because there's life in him that there's life in anything on earth. The point is life does not exist on its own right. Life is not spoken of as made, being made by or through him, but it exists in him. In him was life, John says. And that life was the light of men. So here are the facts. Jesus, the Word, not just a dull organizing principle, but a person. This Word is eternal, eternally related to the Father, equal with the Father, Creator, author of life, and he's also light. Let me back up a minute on this author of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Likely John means life in two ways here. Natural life, as seen throughout the world, and spiritual life. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the author of life. And he also is light. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness 
but the darkness has not understood it. He continually shines. That's the verb tense. Continuous action. He never stops shining. There's never been a time when he didn't shine. There'll never be a time when he doesn't shine. John gives this fact. It's his nature to shine, to illuminate. Darkness can't overcome it. Some translations say darkness can't comprehend it. The NIV says darkness cannot understand it. And they may be referring, John may be referring to three facts in all, in what he says here. At least he's referring to one of them, but possibly three. Creation. There, the light triumphed at creation, and darkness didn't have a chance. Or he could be referring to the fall. Satan didn't really win. What did God say to Satan? You will, you will bruise his, he, he will bruise your head, and you will, supplied, merely bruise his heel or strike his heel. Or maybe John had it meant to, to deal with Calvary here. Bitter and decisive conflict between light and darkness took place at Calvary. But darkness didn't stand a chance. That's what's wrapped up in this phrase, and we don't have time to do much more unpacking on it than that. But the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not understand it. What do we do with all this? I mean, we have a word about Jesus. He is the living word, a person. We have some facts about Jesus. He's eternal. He's eternally related to the Father. He's equal with the Father. He's creator. He's the author of life. He is light. So what? What does it mean? How does it impinge on my life? Well, let me tell you something that came to focus in my mind again this week as I read these words. Convicts me as a preacher of the gospel. Convicts me as a follower of Christ. I don't ever want to be caught dead minimizing to anyone else who he is. I don't ever want to present him merely as a moralist, merely as a good man. Some people say, well, you know, I don't know that he was divine, but he was a good teacher. God doesn't leave us with that choice. He's either who he said he was, or as C.S. Lewis said, or he's a liar, or a lunatic, or someone else said, or a legend. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a legend, or he's who he said he was. And I've determined, whether it be from pulpit or elsewhere, never to present to you or to anyone else a cheapened Christ, merely a good guy, merely a moralist. He's far more than that. He's far more than that in your life. He better be, or we've misunderstood who he was from the get-go. So I think that this, these verses challenge us on at least two levels. One, in terms of allegiance. To whom do we belong? Just an organizing principle of the universe? No, we belong to the Word, a person, Jesus Christ, who is eternal, eternally related to the Father, equal with the Father, creator, author of life, and the light of this world, and the darkness cannot overcome him. That's who we're related to. For a couple of years while I was in seminary, two and a half or three years to be exact, I was on staff with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It was a great job for me while I was in school, uh, more than a job, an opportunity to minister. I met with coaches all around the northern suburbs of Chicago and, and even into Wisconsin. 
After we'd moved to Wisconsin and I'd left staff with FCA, I was invited to speak at a small high school in Wisconsin to their to a, one of the athletic banquets that they were having. This guy had found out that I was with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He invited me to speak. And so I spoke, brought a message that I'd brought in other contexts about FCA. I'd merely talked about what each of the initials stood for. The Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And as I reflected back, this guy was becoming progressively more nervous the longer I spoke. Now I wasn't in anybody's face. I was using good tact. I was behaving myself. I was merely describing what each of these letters stood for. What fellowship meant. What athletes meant. What we meant. What our, what our purview was and our involvement with athletes. And what Christian meant. It was the Christian part that was really getting under this guy's skin. And I could tell when I was done that I was the most popular guy on campus with him. Until other people came up and began to affirm what I had said and compliment what I had said. Then he kind of changed his tune. I think he was running a little scared. Now this is before all the hyper separation of church and state stuff that's going on today. It was there, but it wasn't, you know, you could get by with more, basically. But I wasn't there to, to try to upset the apple cart in the school system. I was just there because I was invited as a former staff member with a fellowship of Christian athletes, and I was not going to talk about the fellowship of religious athletes. That's not who we are. That's what I'm talking about. We can afford to have allegiance to Jesus Christ. He's the living word. We can ill afford not to have allegiance to Christ. We cannot, cannot afford not to heed his words. We cannot afford not to follow his lead. We cannot afford not to accept his salvation. We cannot afford not to lose ourselves in his service. So I think that's one of the things we walk away from this message with today. A call to allegiance. He's the living word. He's our savior. Let's own it. Let's live up to it. And related to that, I said that this would affect us on two levels, at least in my purview it does. The second level is acknowledgement. They're related. In fact, I've already spoken about acknowledgement to some degree. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew and also to the Gentile. Can we acknowledge ourselves as Christians? In fact, I want to ask you to do something. In our society, we can tell we're in a pressure cooker. In fact, I saw this morning, early this morning on Facebook, a comment by Franklin Graham, and he talked about how things are turning against Christians. This is not a time to be wimpy. This is a time to stand up and call Call, say it like it is and proclaim to whom we belong. And I want to encourage you to confidently do that in your relationships. This week, I'm not saying go out and preach. I'm saying just be willing to own up to who you are. At work, in the neighborhood, at school. Speak openly of Him. Speak honestly of Him. Speak like of Him as casually and as freely as you would speak about sports or the weather or whatever it might be. Share naturally the words and facts which 
will communicate who he is. This is John's intent in his gospel to let people know who the Word is. It should be our intent as we live in this world around us that John's words would influence our lifestyle by letting them influence our life. So that's what I would call us to. Let's be who we are if we're in Christ. Let's speak up. Pray with me, would you please?